Hello, I'm Guy Barter. I spent my morning in the kitchen cooking a deliciously simple meal of meatballs using carrots, onions, leeks, celeriac and parsnips from my garden. It tastes delicious. I've frozen a large lot as well, so I'll be eating it for weeks, I expect. Although I may not be a professional in the kitchen, I do know that fresh produce makes a world of difference. Carrots, potatoes, fresh herbs, courgettes, the taste possibilities are endless. And that's why in today's RHS Gardening podcast, we're going to hear from a gardener who's dedicated much of her career to growing the very best fruit and veg for superstar chefs. But it's not just about fancy ingredients for elaborate adult meals. Even kids can get involved. Later, we'll help you keep your little ones busy by growing their own. And make a little hole for the the bean. Boop. (laughs) And hearing about one man's love for a rather unusual tree. Somebody said at this tree planting ceremony, it would puzzle a monkey to climb it. First, we're taking a trip to the garden of one very famous chef. And here you've got so much of the world. You've got about 400 plants here. Okay, all this spinach, this Swiss chard, these beautiful artichokes, these beans in full flower come from Le Manoir Catezon because the garden is really the very heart of Le Manoir. And what we try to do here is to really create... The recognisable excitement of Raymond Blanc, who's well known from regular TV appearances and running a restaurant that boasts two Michelin stars. And as Raymond says... The garden is the very heart of the place. Anna Greenland worked as a gardener there for three years, a pretty dynamic role. Crazy things like picking to order 250 courgette flowers every morning in a sort of hot, steamy polytunnel, getting scratched all up your arms from the, the spiky stems. But far from the Oxfordshire countryside, Anna's growing career actually started in a restaurant down by the sea in Cornwall. She supplied Jamie Oliver's venture, 15. They were really good at putting the names of suppliers on the menu, so it would be things like Anna's beetroot one week or Anna's leaves, and and that was such a buzz, and it it was lovely to sort of work with them in that kind of context, really. My upbringing, I think it definitely did inspire a love of growing produce. My dad was actually the cook in our family, so all my holidays as a kid were in France, really. I think that was one of my father's biggest joys, and and I sort of, too, really loved it, going to the markets and, and seeing all of the fresh produce there and the abundance. I was head vegetable gardener at La Manoir au Cat Saison, which was Raymond Blanc's restaurant in Oxfordshire. It was an amazing opportunity, really, to work with him because he is the sort of the father of garden to plate in this country. My role um, was working really closely with him. So we would have a big meeting every winter where it would go on for a few days and 
we would decide what we were going to grow. We would always do taste trials every year. So we would identify certain crops that we wanted to do flavour trials with. So something like potatoes or apples, you know, he was looking for the perfect potato for French fries or for a dauphinoise or for mash or for roast. That's really what I came away from that experience with was a real appreciation for the importance of varieties of vegetables. I think the thing with working with the chefs in that context, because the garden is right there, you would get chefs popping down under the cover of darkness to take things that maybe because we weren't there, you know, in the evening and they ran out or something, they'd come down and they'd, you'd come in in the morning and find sort of half a row of salad that was butchered or because they, you know, don't necessarily know how to crop things, chefs, in the same way. So we'd kind of laugh that they were another pest, really, to deal with. <laughs> but it was lovely that they could do that and that, that it was so accessible to them. But the chefs themselves didn't so much ask for really unusual things but I think Raymond was the creative driving force for that so I would actually get phone calls sort of in the middle of the night every now and again because he would be traveling somewhere in the time difference and he'd be sort of on the side of a I don't know Mongolian like hillside or something saying you know I've seen this incredibly rare ginger that I want you to try and grow I mean it was that mad I love growing for anyone, really. Um, but I think that the chef connection has just been a really interesting time just because they are so creative. You know, I, I like to think that I can cook and I, I love it and it's a big passion of mine. But when I see what somebody who really, really knows what they're doing with the produce can create, it's, it is like a work of art. It's, a, it's an art form. I mean, some of the plants that I love to grow would be in the herb realm, if and, and when we can sort of start ordering herbs again and, you know, getting things delivered or going to nurseries. I adore something like lemon verbena. It's one of my favourite herbs and it's lovely in tea as a sort of digestif um, after dinner. And then in terms of vegetable crops, I would say grow things that are going to give you good flavour and some of the edible flowers as well so I always grow calendula which brings in all the bees but also you know you can use as an edible flower scatter it through salads if you grow a lot of it you can infuse it into an oil which is really good for skin um, calendula is a great skin herb so if you've got hands that are ravaged by hand sanitizer, then that's quite a nice one to grow and then I would also recommend things that give you a lot of bang for your buck. So I don't think there's much point growing things like, you know, broccoli that's going to give you one head or cauliflower that's going to give you one head and it's going to take up a lot of space in the ground. I would grow things that keep coming back, things like kale that you can keep harvesting over a long period. 
Well, I think now more than ever with the dreaded corona, I've seen a huge upsurge in interest through my kind of social media and things like that, people getting in touch and, and really wanting to arm themselves with the skills to be able to grow. And I think people feel vulnerable. You know, we've seen what's happened with the supermarkets and bulk buying and, and access to food. And I think, you know, corona and, and this pandemic has really blown apart our global food system in, in a way and shown the vulnerabilities. And I think it... It highlights the importance of supporting our local farms and our local growers. And, you know, hopefully there'll be people wanting to get into growing more produce in, in the future. I think, you know, it's one of the most powerful skills that you can learn, really, being able to grow your own food. Anna Greenland, organic vegetable grower and gardener to Star Chefs. After hearing that, I think I'm going to channel my inner Raymond Blanc and use my garden to create some kitchen masterpieces. Now, a colleague of mine has a passion for one particular plant. Some love it, some loathe it. It's a tree with a prehistoric look, almost like it's better placed living among the dinosaurs. For me, this tree is a great favourite. When I was a child, there was one in local woods and on a Saturday or Sunday afternoons, I'd go with a walk with my gran to look at this tree in lonely isolation among the Forestry Commission plantations. And for one of our curators, he's definitely in team love. There's an estate in Cornwall called Pencaro and the story goes that they were having a, a tree planting ceremony there. Uh, one of the first trees at Pencaro was by the rock garden and somebody said at this, this tree planting ceremony it would puzzle a monkey to climb it. <laughs> My name's Matthew Pottage and I absolutely love the monkey puzzle tree. They were very, very uh, kind of the thing to have. They were quite a, a status symbol. If you had access to the seed, that would be collected by a chap called James McRae. So if you were in the right circles and you could get some of the seed or some of the plants for your estate or your garden, you know, you were doing quite well. Just how they've evolved is also quite fascinating because there's records of them from prehistoric times. They're around probably during the period of the dinosaurs and their adaptation and the way they grow is probably a grazing technique. So, you know, very, very spiny stems. They can't easily be grazed. And in older age, they lose their lower branches and those heads of world foliage, like big parasols, are so high up, you know, they're completely out of reach of just about any animal. And when the cones are ripening on the female trees, they're really spiny. So you really can't get the seed until it's ripe. So they're quite well protected. So the monkey puzzle tree first became known to me when I was in year six at junior school. My teacher at the time, she's quite a creative lady, she was an artist, and her classroom was full of all manner of interesting cones, seed heads, bits of pottery, paintings. It was just an absolute treasure trove of interesting things. And she had these big dried branches of a monkey puzzle tree, which were completely brown. They looked like something of like a dinosaur's tail or something. They were really long and spindly and they had all the, the leaves really closed in and dried tight to the stem. 
I didn't even know what they were, like they were off a tree at the time. And she told me what they were, and I then looked it up and was just fascinated by this thing. And you know, once something is becomes known to you, then you start hearing about it or someone mentions it in conversation. So like literally a couple of days later, I spotted a monkey puzzle tree in someone's garden and thought, absolutely, that's the same thing. And then it kind of started to kick off from there, I guess. And in the town where I grew up on the Yorkshire coast, it's so windswept and so open. There, there aren't many trees there anyway. And what trees are there are things like windburnt, sycamore and elders. Not the most exciting of things. So when you see something like a monkey puzzle, it's just so different and so unusual and for me so exciting and because it has so many interesting stories both of how it's evolved and how it's got such a ridiculous common name you know the whole thing is quite an interesting little package so monkey puzzles I think are a bit of a marmite plant you either seem to love them or you really hate them and I can understand why people struggle to love them you know they do look quite alien in the landscape but I just think if you're ever going to get children interested in plants or get people enthused catch the magic of a plant this has so much personality and stories behind it it's a really lovely thing and also you know you can have it sat in a pot it's a rewarding thing to grow from seed it's a brilliant thing to grow with kids and let them see it you know it's like a little dinosaur hatching out of an egg when it first germinates so you know you can grow it and keep it in a pot for several years and then eventually either give it away or whatever but it is a really lovely little talking point to have in a pot on the patio or in the back garden so even for the novelty value and the story and the fun of raising something from seed just keep it in the back of your mind as something really fun to have growing with the kids you know you don't necessarily need to commit to a long-term tree if you don't have the space for it you can give that away you know five ten years down the line so obviously naturally growing up i wanted a monkey puzzle as a kid my parents actually weren't so sure in fact I don't really think they like them but they didn't have much of a choice in the matter and the house we lived in had one of those dodgy looking top worked weeping willows in the middle of the front garden so that very quickly ended up in the compost bin and the monkey puzzle went in the monkey puzzle is still there it's now a lot taller than I am and it produced its first male cones uh, last year I think now I lose track of time and fortunately it's fairly big front garden but probably still closer to the house than most people would like and I did have one in a pot actually where I'm living now in West London in the back terrace here but it got too big for the pot and you know I just put it on eBay then and somebody bought it and I made someone's day and he was really delighted and I would just recommend the same to anyone else it's a really fun thing to grow So I never, ever get bored of seeing a monkey puzzle, no matter how many I've seen. If I come across one in a garden or in a park, it's something I always feel like I need to go up to, to see it, to touch it, to just get close to it. There's some kind of magical thing that happens for me, and I'm I'm sure it happens for other people with other plants or other trees or other gardens as well. It's that emotional connection that I think you can have with nature. So no, I just don't think I'll ever tire from them. Matthew Pottage on his adoration for the monkey puzzle tree. If you had to write a love letter to a plant, what would it be and why? For me, it would be the apple. I love its spring blossom. I love the fruit, of course, and there's nothing quite as nice as an orchard in the summer heat or in the winter cold. We'd love to hear from you. 
you can tweet us at the underscore RHS or drop us an email using podcast at rhs.org.uk. As Matthew mentioned there, unusual trees and plants can be a great way to get your kids interested in gardening. For many of us, this period of lockdown has meant a lot of homeschooling. Getting into green spaces can help your children learn about the world around them. It keeps them busy and it helps you tick off some much-needed garden maintenance. What's not to like? My parents used to get me to help outside. I can well remember planting leeks and Brussels sprouts with the hose pipe running and lots of mud everywhere in the old-fashioned bare root transplant way. Step aside, maths. It's time for your gardening lesson. Here's advisor Becky Mealy with her daughter Faye on some engaging tasks for you to do with your own children. First off, we started with our house plants. So a lot of them were getting a bit tired, so they needed repotting and tidying and dusting. Yeah. Especially the ones in your room needed a lot of dusting, didn't they? Yeah, Faye? they did. <laughs> And then we also started off growing some microgreens, so things like cress and rockets. So these are the little seedlings you can grow on a windowsill um, and then you can cut them and use them in salads. And we've got a little bit of an array of an apple pip and an avocado, haven't we? Yeah, and we've got names for them too. So the um, apples one's called pip and... I don't remember that. And the avocado is called Arnie. So that's just basically an apple pip from an apple just sewed in a pot and it grew and we're trying to bonsai it. And then the avocado is just from an avocado seed. So the key with them is to keep them nice and damp and warm. So if you wrap the avocado seed up in some wet kitchen paper put it in a a plastic bag and then put it in the airing cupboard so it needs a nice warm airing cupboard to help germination the wetness of the paper helps break the actual shell of the seed and then keep checking on it maybe put a little bit more water in it air it off a little bit and then sure enough what will happen is that a white root will start growing Once it's about five centimetres long, you can bring it out and pot it up. And then what should happen is the actual shoot will start growing. And sure enough, you will get an avocado. The weather improved a little bit, didn't it? So we headed outside. So what were you doing with Daddy? So I was planting potatoes. Um, And then you were moving the the strawberries, weren't you? Yeah, to another patch. To another patch and weeding. And then I did trust you with the secateurs, didn't I, to prune back the cornice stems and you did really well with those yeah I did (laughs) and then what did you make with the corner stems after that so I made like crowns which had flowers in it and I gave one to mummy one to daddy and one to me so Faye kind of made a hoop with the actual corner stems and wound it together a bit like a Christmas wreath really but head size and then she put some flowers in it so it's quite fun bit of garden art there Faye's got a little garden in front of her shed and yeah. what plans have you got for there? So I'm just going to keep my um, daisies and then sort out the soil with the um, old one and um, plant some wildflowers. So what are we up to today? Can you remember what I was saying we're going to do? Um, we're going to plant some beans. That's it. So we're going to sow some French beans. They're really nice and easy, just basically compost pots and water and away we go. So should we head out there and do that? Yep, let's go. 
So Faye, what have we got here? It's a bit like a recipe really, isn't it? What do we need to sow our dwarf French beans? So we need plant pots, seeds. And then what else have we got? We've got a watering can. And then um, name tags. And yeah, let's get going. So with the compost, Faye is going to get her fingers in there and get all the lumps out so that it settles in the pot and so that you don't get any big air pockets and it's just nice for the seedling to push through. So she's just getting out all the lumps and then we're gonna put it into the pot. So the key here is to get your hands in and fill right up to the top of the pot. Brush off the top, you can use a label, your fingers, and then three magic taps, one, two, three. And then that makes the soil sink down and it is firm enough. You don't want to overly firm it because, again, the seeds can't push through. And then, because we're doing big seeds, it's dead easy just to put your finger in and make a little hole for the, the bean. Boop. Boop. And then we've got a label. Put the labelling, especially when you're sowing lots of other different things at the time. It's always good to know what is going to pop up and so you don't get in the wrong row or anywhere else. And then we're going to put a group of them on the floor and water them. So if I was going to do the next one. With larger seeds, it's a lot easier to water them after you have sown the seed. But with smaller seeds like tomatoes and chilies, I like to water them first and then sow because otherwise what happens is the seeds wash away and don't end up where you actually sprinkled them and then should we give them a good old soak yeah so the trick is to get the water running a little bit first and then pour it over there we go nice there we go yay okay. need them to settle before you pick him up and wet and then so they should be up in about 10 days we're going to pop them in the greenhouse in the cool section and before i know it, we'll have some french beans on the table so you're gonna eat all the french beans up probably <laughs> yeah this is the, one of the benefits of growing your own veg is that it just makes kids kind of want to eat something that they've grown and they know where it's grown and it's fun Hearing Faye's passion got me thinking about my first foray into gardening. Seeing I had a bit of interest, a villager down the road called Willie Weeks, a renowned gardener in the district, gave me a cucumber plant and some grape hyacinth bulbs. I planted the grape hyacinth bulbs and had enormous pleasure as they came up and flowered. And well, anyone can grow grape hyacinths, I still grow them now and they're still one of my favourite plants. The cucumber, however, was a bit more of a challenge and although I made a cold frame out of scrap glass and bricks, I fear no cucumbers were ever harvested. Happily, now I'm renowned for my cucumbers. What about you? What's your first gardening memory? You can tell us all about it by using the hashtag RHSpodcast on social media. Our website is full of useful information about all kinds of plants, gardening with your kids and growing your own. 
For links to some of the topics mentioned in this programme, visit rhs.org.uk slash podcast. Next week, Fiona Davison will be looking at the magic of birdsong. When you think of blackbirds, robins, wrens, we've got plenty of birdsong around us. And I think that isn't lost on most gardeners. I think that gardeners hear that, they recognise that that is the soundtrack to gardening as well as the soundtrack to our lives. And prepare yourself to hear my rook impression. In the meantime, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.